You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club, a home for those interested in international trade, shipping, procurement, logistics, and air freight. In fact, all things supply chain in the Americas, Asia, and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by your host, Mike King, and produced in partnership with Demurco Express Group, a global 3PL that specializes in managing logistics to, from, and within the Asia-Pacific region. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Freight Buyers Club where you can subscribe to receive every episode direct to your inbox. In part two of this podcast which starts at around 36 minutes should you wish to fast forward I'm joined by Edwin Lopez the uh, industry dive editor who's responsible for publications such as supply chain dive, transport dive and manufacturing dive. We have some early thoughts on Flexport purchasing Shopify Logistics and we're joined by Preeta Sadzadeh, Senior Vice President of SMB Product and Technology at Flexport. She, like CEO Dave Clark, is an ex-Amazon executive. She's also the very person who's in charge of making this move into e-commerce by Flexport work. Me and Edwin also have the latest updates on the West Coast dock worker contract negotiations and we look at how the near year-long standoff has impacted US logistics flows. We've also got the latest on the Bed Bath & Beyond bankruptcy. We examine the new Super Railroad CPKC which is offering Pan North America services and we also look at the FMC's new powers, the latest detention and demorage claims against container lines by shippers, not least by the very same Bed Bath & Beyond. But first up, we're looking at the global air cargo market with a bit of last mile and integrator analysis thrown in. And to explore these things, I'm joined by two experts in their field. First is my old colleague, Kathy Robeson, who many of you will know as the curator of the JOC's excellent weekly publication, Freight Forward. She's also a key contributor to Air Cargo Next and a brilliant sharer of all things supply chain on social media. Kathy, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. And Kathy is joined today by another person. Many of you will know well if you attend conferences or you make a point of listening to Air Cargo Market Thought Leaders. It's Brandon Freed, Executive Director at Air Forwarders Association, who I believe has been on a bit of a tour of Europe's trade shows and conferences at the moment. Brandon, where are you now and how are you keeping? I'm in Washington, D.C. today, but off to Munich on Monday and just returned from the IATA World Cargo Symposium in Istanbul. Thanks for having me, Mike, and it's always great to be on with Kathy. Fantastic. Well, uh, let's push on, shall we? Air cargo markets, in three words, how would you describe the health of those air cargo markets right now? A holding pattern. Brandon? Yeah, I would say normalizing. We're coming down off the, the lofty volumes that we saw during the pandemic, which we all know were not sustainable long-term, but we're normalizing. We're not crashing. We're normalizing. We're getting back to realistic level. Normalizing being a very long three-worder. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> normalizing. That's four. We can break that down <laughs> any way you like. Well, honestly, I'm saying, okay, well, hang on a minute here, Mike. So I was saying holding pattern. Simply because, yeah, Brandon's right. We are normalizing. Everybody involved in supply chain market is seeing a normalization, but we're also sitting here in a holding pattern because things have really, really slowed down and we're waiting for that. Okay, when is it going to start ticking back up and waiting for that 
uptick, which everyone seems to think it's the second half of this year. I don't know. The jury's still out on that. Yeah, I'm going to be bullish. I'm going to buy the dip. I think that we need to be bullish in the second half, but consumers are still out there spending. Although we received news this morning that the U.S. Fed is, is going to meet today and will probably have another 25 basis points to increase the rate. So that might damper things. But I'll tell you, Mike, I've been doing a lot of flying, both domestically and internationally. There's never an empty seat next to me. I mean, people are out there, they're spending, and they're in the stores too. Exactly. Right, Kathy? Not just the grocery stores. They're in the Walmarts. They're in the Macy's. It's across the board. Right. I mean, it's not only in the the Walmarts, the Dollar Generals, or what have you, but it's also in the Macy's and the higher-ups and that middle market. I agree. I think we're going to see an uptick, but how big of an uptick is still questionable. Like you said, I think the consumers, they're willing to spend. They've got, you know, for the most part. But the big problem is still the inventory levels. I mean, we've got retailers and other shippers still hesitant on buy or replenishing inventories. They've been very cautious. They've been buying just enough new stuff or seasonal stuff to keep those sales going. What that means for uh, fourth quarter of this year, the holiday season remains to be seen. But I think possibly we might see an air uptick. I'm just going to challenge you both on, on your synopsis there because you both sound very, very positive. And I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit surprised. Let me give uh, our listeners some context. Now, just if you look at compared to a year later, the Baltic freight index is 45% lower than a year ago. We've had some really good data out from World ACD and that's showing that the worldwide air cargo chargeable weight flown in the first quarter of 2023 was 11% lower than a year earlier. And in terms of origin regions, Asia Pacific was down 16%, North America down 18%. Let's look at those purchase manager index reports that you'd sort of reference there. The latest Chinese official manufacturing PMI actually disappointed market forecast. That was in contractory territory at 49.2 in April. And the new orders sub-index, which has always been quite a good bellwether for our industry, that was down to 48.8 last month from 53.6 in March. As you say, we've got inventories are still quite high. The shipping is more reliable. Pricing is a lot cheaper. Eurozone manufacturing production fell in April. We heard on the latest episode of this podcast that there was a U.S. freight recession. And some economists are still predicting a full-blown U.S. recession later this year. So where exactly is this optimism coming from, guys? <laughs> okay, yeah, you're right. So, yeah, we've got manufacturing slipping. And, you know, when I was coming up in the freight forwarding space at UPS, we were told two months after that, you can usually track the health of the ocean freight based on the manufacturing numbers. So like two months out from that manufacturing figure should see the uptick or the downturn, the result of that manufacturing figure. So if April was a downturn, that would mean June figures, which is early peak season, beginnings of peak season for ocean freight. It's going to be down. Okay, fine. Well, not, it's not really good, but I think it's going to bode well, really more for the air freight market than possibly the ocean freight, particularly as we go further or get closer to that important holiday season at the end of the year. So I think we'll eventually start seeing an uptick in that manufacturing uh, number within the next couple of months. 
as the inventory levels continued to be drawn down, it was still got that hangover from last year. And as soon as that gets taken care of in one way or the other, either through the secondary markets or actually sold, that's when you're going to see that uptick. I think the consumer is still willing to spend. We do have that inflation figure that has come down, and I think it's going to start creeping down a little further. Hopefully it does, but we're still willing to spend on stuff and such. So, And also, when you look at the year-over-year numbers, I don't look at year-over-year numbers. Last year was still one of those extraordinary years. You have to take a step back and look at what was it in 2019 and such and just kind of weigh. Yeah, that's a very good point. And rates versus 2019, they look very different. Plus, you've got higher jet fuel prices. Brandon, if I may put a different point to you, there is room for optimism out there. I was being devil's advocate slightly there with that raft of data I was sort of assembled. Eric Coolish made this point in a very good article in Freightways. He drew attention to a growing school of thought within the air logistics sector that freight rates are in fact artificially lower than pure supply and demand would dictate because airlines have consciously chosen to operate more aircraft than necessary. So they're ready for the next upcycle. Is that a factor for you? Do you see that? You've just been over at the World Cargo Symposium. Is that the sense you got from people there? Well, the airlines are not bringing on more aircraft because of air cargo. They're bringing on more aircraft to get these people on board because they've got lines of passengers waiting to fly. And, you know, airlines, the passenger carriers focus on flying passengers around. And we all know that flying cargo is an ancillary uh, uh, service. But it benefits because obviously it does have a, the more capacity on the pasture side we have, the more rates could drop. But at the same time, that's why they're doing it. I mean, they want to get these airplanes back out of the desert and in the air again. And if they've got fannies to fill those seats, they're going to do it. Now, the freight forwarders, the, the shippers, they benefit long run because obviously the airlines are going to want to tailor their pricing to attract business. But what it does represent is a departure away from the traditional freighters that we saw during the pandemic. There's less reliance on them. We, we've been reading that some of the older freighters are going to be uh, phased out. But that's not to say that freighters won't still have their value. And we don't know what's coming. We don't know what the next black swan event is. God forbid, you know, the pandemic comes back or the COVID resurges. I think these guys want to be ready. But, you know, I think they're cautiously optimistic. But right now, they have reason to be. They've got everyone and their brother flying on those planes right now. And they can't get enough airplanes out there. So uh, your forwarder members then, Brandon, they're optimistic about the rest of the year, are they? Oh, yeah. They're optimistic. But they're realists, too. I mean, they see that volumes have normalized. And they have to adapt to it. And obviously, now is the time for freight forwarders to really show their creative strength because you have to anticipate what's coming around the corner, as I just mentioned. God knows we've got some big concerns coming up on the West Coast. They're in uh, port negotiations with labor out there. We don't quite know what's happening. We've seen some encouraging signs. But what, three Fridays ago, a good Friday, labor fired a shot across the bow out there by closing facilities at the Port of Long Beach and Los Angeles. I mean... They're saying, hey, you better take us seriously. So that's coming. We're going to have to deal with that. You mentioned earlier, UPS uh, is in in, in work negotiations right now. We'll probably work that out. But the reality is that's something coming. Thankfully, 
the Biden administration stepped in on the rail situation, got those workers back to work. So there's a lot going on. And that's where freight forwarders have got to be the creative problem solvers that we are. We got to be ready for it. Kathy, how are carriers and integrators setting up for the rest of the year? Well, I know with the integrators, particularly UPS and FedEx, the volumes have been on a decline after reaching record highs during the pandemic period. They're having to match their network with the lower volumes. So they do expect an uptick in that second half of the year as far as volumes, but nowhere near what it was just a couple of years ago. So what they're doing is they're reducing those block hours for the air. They are actually shutting down. UPS actually said on their earnings call last week, the first quarter earnings, that they're actually shutting down some of their sorting facilities to drive more volumes to their more automated, larger hubs. And we're seeing this again with FedEx. There's a lot of cost cutting going on, not only from them, but also UPS. But we hear more about the FedEx situation. So FedEx is shutting down facilities. They're grounding planes and such as that as well. What exactly is going on at FedEx, Kathy? Can you can you tell me? They're, they're trying to find $6 billion, $6 billion of cost savings, right? This is going to result in a huge company-wide reorganization. Loads of offices are going to be closed. Uh, we'll be seeing less flights, maybe less yeah. contractors on the ground side. Go on, please, please explain that song and verse. Well, you know, those are good questions. A lot of people have those, still have those questions, even after FedEx had um, a special call back in April to go over this whole cost-cutting plan that they have. But yeah, so originally how they were set up, it was almost, it was very siloed. You had the FedEx ground, you had FedEx Express, and you had FedEx Freight. They operated in each of those silos. And they didn't really talk to each other very much. And that was a problem, of course, because at UPS, everyone talks to each other. Ground talks to air, air talks to whomever, and, and so on. UPS is more agile. FedEx wasn't agile. So back in 2020, they did start this process of trying to cut cost, have FedEx Express, FedEx Ground working together with Ground, making a lot of the deliveries on behalf of FedEx Express because Ground is not unionized. FedEx Express is. It's a higher cost. And then the pandemic hit and that all kind of went out the window as they had to address higher demand. Well, now they're back at it. And it has been very painful because FedEx has accrued a good bit of cost during the pandemic as well. They've invested in automating facilities. They've had to increase wages, hire more people, and so on. So this has been a painful situation. And that, yes, they are grounding planes because they don't need them right now because the volumes aren't there. They are basically matching their network to a lower level of volume. More stuff is going to be transported on ground, meaning trucks, meaning vans, and so on, less in the air, which is going to be interesting. Now, yeah, ground is being merged into express. That's the big question. How is that going to work? Nobody really knows for sure. They seem to think they do. They know, but they're not sharing it with us, the public. So is ground going to make all the deliveries? For FedEx Express, we're not sure. They said it was going to be more of a hybrid solution. We'll see. Don't forget about those pilots, Kathy. Oh, no. How can I forget the pilots? So 
while all of this is going on, we have a contract negotiation that's been going on since 2021 with the pilots, FedEx and the FedEx pilots. And they've been going back and forth. And now there's a ballot out for the pilots. They're voting on a strike authorization. That doesn't mean they're going to go out on strike. That just means that they can call a strike once they've jumped through all the hoops. And this is going to be interesting. This is very interesting to watch because FedEx is classified under the Rail Labor Act. Yeah, the Railroad Labor. Mm -hmm. Railroad. And UPS is under the um, another. The other one. (laughs) The other one. The other classification. (laughs) Yeah, two different arrangements. This has always pissed UPS off because they always said, we offer the same solutions. And they've always said that with FedEx be under the RLA, that they get preferential treatment, basically, from the government. It's harder to go on strike under RLA regulations versus what UPS is under. And so UPS has filed complaints after complaints. Well, now there is a potential likelihood that they could file another complaint and have FedEx reclassified since they're pushing more volume onto the ground. But no, the pilots, bless them. They are fighting. They, they want higher pay, better working conditions, and so on and so forth. If I could say, you know, we're seeing this at the airlines too. I mean, these pilots, they want their piece of the pie. They've seen all these, these outrageously high profit numbers. They want their piece of the pie. We're seeing it on the airline side. American just voted exactly. to, their pilots voted to strike. Same kind of situation. And you remember all the publicity during the uh, pandemic with the FedEx pilots having to wait in Hong Kong. I mean, they were quarantined before they can go back to flying and, and such. So, yeah, they remember all of this and they want their dues, basically. Brandon, can I just put something to you? Labor-related issues, is this now the, the potential big disruptor in this post-pandemic world? And I'd suggest a couple of things. There. We've talked about pilots seeking better conditions, better pay. You mentioned earlier there's the ILWU West Coast Dock Workers dispute that's been casting this shadow over U.S. supply chains. And it's got global implications for container shipping flows, which I'll be discussing in the part two of this podcast, actually, with Edwin Lopez at Industry Dive. But on the other side, we've heard there's been some very high-profile cutbacks of labor by the likes of Amazon, by integrators, yep. by even possibly some of your own members of the digital side have been quite high-profile, I would say, Brandon. Is this one of the big unknowns? We're saying that there's going to be a pickup later in the year, but people don't really know, and we're seeing this in their labor strategies to a degree. Yeah, well, labor has been an issue throughout the pandemic, as we all know, especially on the cargo handling side. As far as those companies that are cutting back on their tech talent, that's not the first time we've seen this. I mean, we've seen tech waves where they'll hire a lot of skilled uh, workers that that understand computer automation, then they'll just cut back. And that's that's not unusual. What, What we are seeing is, you mentioned earlier, we had talked about that port labor situation could be an issue, but we're also seeing it at the airport. Um, it's still difficult for these ground handlers to get the requisite labor they need to handle the freight where you know, we still have trucks waiting in line for two, two and a half hours at the major gateways. And the ground handlers tell me it's because of labor. They just can't attract workers at that wage level who are willing to wait three, four, sometimes five weeks to get a security credential to be able to work at the airport. That's a, that's a big concern. 
And so I, I think in general, I, I find this labor situation fascinating. There's really no more government assistance uh, that was uh, offered during the pandemic, yet employers are still having trouble filling their labor roles. And, and it's not just our industry, it's other industries as well. Labor is continuing to be a challenge. I'm wondering how these people can survive without working, but maybe they're elsewhere. I, I just don't know. We ask, what are these people doing? There's more options for them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are like turning to reselling on some of these online marketplaces or starting their own business. I think I read last year there was a number. It was almost a record number of small businesses starting up. So I think the number of small businesses are steadily rising. But again, also the failure rate is pretty high too. And Kathy, I, I think our industry needs to do a better job at uh, promoting itself to the labor force, to, you know, to, to have value. I agree. Right. We're, we're a fascinating industry. And if it wasn't for the pandemic, we would have no street cred. I mean, now people know what logistics is. They know the value of freight forwarding. They know what, you know, I, I don't stop cocktail party conversation anymore when I tell them in the fr- I'm in the freight forwarding <laughs> business because people understand what exactly. it is. So we, we got to do a better job of promoting ourselves as a viable career choice. Oh, I've got I've got a story for you there on that front then, because we do hear about these labor shortages. And I've been going to these conferences for over 20 years now, and people are saying, oh, you know, we've got to do more to attract people to our industry. Now, I recently uh, tried and failed to get my 17-year-old son, who actually does find our industry interesting even before the pandemic. I tried to get him some work experience in the UK using my own contacts. I know via the media, and he didn't mind if he went into a HR department, didn't mind if he went into a warehouse, a port, anything really. And uh, I got zero responses to my request, mostly because it seemed the HR departments had just never been asked the question, can someone come into your office and see what your industry's like for a few days? So he's going into his friend's dad's IT business where he's going to do something to do with IT. Instead of learning about this wonderful industry of ours. So are the pathways really there? Are they, is it better in the States than it is in the UK? Because I always hear people moaning about we can't attract people, but then actually when you say, I've got someone who's quite intelligent, he likes our industry and he's willing to work for free, they don't know how to deal with it. I would tell you from a forwarding perspective, I think forwarders right now are just cautious. They don't want to make any significant moves and they can't afford to dabble. They want to make sure that the labor that they hire is in fact skilled and capable of, of producing a sufficient return on investment. During the pandemic, when you, you anybody that was warm and had a heartbeat could, was welcome to come and work, things have changed a little bit. That's not to say that skilled labor and qualified labor is still not a challenge for these companies, but they can't dabble right now. But where's the outreach to young students, to people who are going to graduate soon or postgraduates? I don't see that in the UK. Are those pathways available in the, in the U.S.? Yeah, well, we got to depend on the trade associations to promote that within the industry. And, and over in Europe, I've seen that they have these apprenticeship programs and, and that's how you, you mold and train the next generation. It concerns me here in the States that I don't see as much of a backbench of the next generation coming up in freight forwarding as I'd like to. I see a, a lot of older people and, and I always ask what's going to happen when they phase out. So, you know, again, I go back to what I said earlier. We have to do a better job. And companies 
have to see that and say, listen, we need to start nurturing talent at a younger part of their lives. And, and so that we've got that back bench ready to go. You know, work to do. I know with the Reverse Logistics Association, and I work with them as a research uh, manager, we connect with a lot of universities that offer the supply chain educational tracks. And we work with them in regards to, uh, to various projects, research projects we've got going on. We have a couple of interns. And so we bring them in and we encourage them to join in on our monthly webinars, which are really great. They're usually open to the public and such. So there's a good learning experience for them to get them to understand what the heck reverse logistics is and hopefully encourage more folks in that space. And I would like to uh, tip my hat to, to several uh, colleges and universities here in the U.S. that are, are starting to, you know, it used to be, I think, what, University of Tennessee at Knoxville was probably the, the big logistics center. But now the University of Denver, Florida International University, and several others are offering logistics pathways, uh, which I think is, is encouraging. And, and that's got to be because a lot of these young people are seeing what happened. They're going to remember the fact that they couldn't get toilet paper during the pandemic. They're going to remember the long lines, the empty shelves. But, and, and some of them are going to be fascinated as to what supply chain is and, and the value it gives us. And they're going to want to get involved. We need to promote it. The opportunity to strike is probably now, isn't it? It's never been so much interest. The efficiency of those supply chains, if I may just jump slightly. I remember we've talked previously, Brandon, about the difficulties people have trying to access this premium air cargo product when if you're a trucker, you might have to wait eight hours to collect your cargo from LAX or something. That was during the pandemic. So two questions. One, has that improved at all? And secondly, is there enough government support for upgrading some of this airport infrastructure in the US, which really hasn't been updated for, for decades in some cases? Or, or do we need to look at some of these newer airfields that are available outside of these urban conurbations where there's a bit more room for, for freight, perhaps? Yeah, well, you know, during the pandemic, like we saw it, truckers waiting seven, eight, nine hours at these major airports. We took a survey of our members recently, and they're still waiting two, two and a half hours with normalized volumes, lower volumes, for a lot of reasons. We took surveys in an attempt to figure out why this was happening. Many of the U.S. airports, and it's not just in the United States, it's all over the world, they haven't received any sufficient cargo area investment in over 50 years. And the most recent infrastructure law that was passed here in the U.S., the airports want $115 billion for improvements. They get $25 billion. And I don't know about you, but $25 billion, I guarantee you they're not going to spend it in the cargo area. They're going to spend it on shiny railings and passenger facilities, which they rightfully should do because, you know, airports are focused on passengers. But the reality is, is that we need better infrastructure in these areas. We need automation so that we can get some organization to, in, in queuing these drivers. We need better credentialing mechanisms. So what we've done at the Air Forwarders Association is we've gone and, and partnered with the National Customs Brokers and Forwarders Association of America. And we are lobbying Congress right now. We've got AFA has lobbyists up there and NCBFA has a team of lobbyists as well. And we're approaching the House and Senate Air Cargo Caucuses to get money for this purpose, to improve the cargo areas. But I think it starts with education. You know, 
Most people don't understand that there's freight flying in the bellies of passenger planes. And it's like half of the freight. And they don't understand the repercussions of that stopping and being delayed. Of course, you mentioned it earlier, Mike, we can't waste time. We sell time for a living. And so every minute counts. And because our medical supplies, our factory uh, that are down, people need air freight for a reason. That's why it it costs a a premium. So we're working now. Our our hope is to attach uh, this request into one of the 13 appropriations bills in this Congress. And then, of course, we're also going to look to the FAA reauthorization bill for a, a general accountability office study uh, focusing on the issues so that people can start learning that this exists. Big concern. Where does security fit into all this as well? I know this was something you spoke about at the World Cargo Symposium, the alignment of global cargo security programs. And you're also working with the U.S. Transportation Security Administration on a roadmap for security. How is this fitting in with making this air cargo supply chain more efficient? Why is this important? Well, obviously, it's a good point because I said last week in Istanbul that when you don't have alignment of security regulations between countries, you have confusion. So we have to align our security protocols. And here we're in the United States, we're enhancing all cargo aircraft security through the, the TSA is instituting some rules as a big deadline coming up in October. And understanding and having clarity and and making sure TSA understands some of the challenges and implementing those rules is is essential. We we had a big meeting in Miami week before last with TSA leadership and attendance, just focusing on on the challenges that we face going ahead. But I think that we we are actively involved in our engagement with the Transportation Security Administration. We hold a seat on the. Uh, Aviation Security Advisory Committee, and, we're, and, and we are helping TSA with its air cargo roadmap that they've come up with. We, they have voluntold me to, to lead a group, uh, basically, that uh, uh, is mapping out the air cargo supply chain. And you might, don't, you might think that's easy. It's fraught with complexity. We've got 10 very skilled, knowledgeable people from all walks. You know, we've got UPS, we've got FedEx, we've got airlines, we have forwarders. And, and we're all pulling our hair out anyway. So, um, but the point is, is that we have to stay actively engaged. And when we work with other countries, their rule can't radically different from ours because that's a, that's a vulnerability. We can't have that. Thank you very much. Um, I've got a quick question for you both just to finish up here. You were both pretty optimistic for a, a Q4 peak season. Can you uh, very, very quickly... Starting with Kathy, what do you think are the, the biggest opportunities and challenges when we look forward to 2024 for global air cargo, for U.S. air cargo? I think it's going to be better than this year. At least I hope so. I hope so. I mean, yeah, I do think we're going to see some improvements in the second half of the year, but I don't think they're going to be super major improvements. But for 2024, yeah, I, I would like to see and I expect improvements in not only air, but also ocean freight demand. I'm still a proponent, still a believer in globalization. I think it's here to stay. We're going to see a little, you know, we're going to see some regionalization mixed in with it. It's just that whole globalization is going to be different. So the trade lanes, I think, are going to be shifting. We're going to see some more shifts in those trade lanes, whether they're air or ocean. Uh, and into 2024 as well. Brandon, do you see geopolitical ruction as a, as a big challenge as we move forward? 
Yeah, so going into 2024, I agree with Kathy. I think we have a new baseline we got to look at. Let's stop comparing before the pandemic. It, it, it's now a new world, okay? And everything we need to start looking and seeing, okay, we're now we're through the pandemic, we're seeing this normalization, but we're also seeing a new geopolitical order that we have to pay close attention to. Obviously, the, the war in Ukraine is a, uh, a real wild card at this point in time. China and Taiwan, that, that's also a wild card. And as will the U.S.'s reaction to what's going on, rising costs in China, rising labor costs, that economy is starting to flourish. Heck, there are even Chinese manufacturing companies that are getting out of China and relocating to, to other parts of Asia. And as Kathy, I think, rightfully said, you're going to see regionalizing of supply chains. And here in the U.S., you know, they passed the CHIPS Act and that other one that, that you know, are focused on bringing more manufacturing back into the United States. So we're seeing a, a whole different political structure out there that's going to be interesting, and it'll, it'll have a significant impact on supply chains. I think, if I, if, I may, if I may add to that, I think one of the biggest lessons a lot of shippers learned during the pandemic was we can't put all of our eggs into the Chinese basket, per se. And they are diversifying. And that's where you're seeing this regionalization, this shift in globalization, however you want to say it. So you're seeing they're still keeping some of their Chinese suppliers, but they're adding suppliers elsewhere in Asia, Europe, and so on. That whole just-in-case situation. So they don't get caught with their pants down, not knowing, oh, I need another supplier or such. You mentioned, Brandon, how some Chinese suppliers are moving into other Asian countries. They're also shifting over to Mexico as well. Good many of them are opening up facilities there because they are seeing that interest in that whole North America trade route. Yep. And Peru, South America. Yep. 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 Colombia. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And by the way, you know, this shift, this manufacturing shift away from China takes time. Yes. And last time I looked, Walmart is still importing a lot of containers out of China. Target is too. So. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm just hoping that sensible political heads prevail here and, yeah. and people realize that fighting with each other is bad for business. I mean, I think Russia has seen that with Ukraine. I mean, they're a pariah in a lot of places in this world. I, I'm sure the Chinese don't want that. It's bad for business and long term. And so I think that that's going to, we'll, we'll see. But that's that's what we're looking at for 2024. And not to mention, 2024 is an election year as well. So it could be a big toss-up of how we proceed as a country. Yeah, as long as we're getting employed, I think the Biden administration has got to get the inflation thing under control. Definitely. Right? I mean, I just think they, you know, the voters are tolerant for a lot of stuff, but they are intolerant when the economy is, is when their grocery bills are, and their fuel bills are, are in the stratosphere. When it hits the consumer's pocketbook, yeah, definitely. And I would say that's not just true in the States. That's true right across Europe where there's a load of other elections happening as well. Thank you, guys. Next up, I'm getting, amongst other things, an update from Edwin Lopez. Managing Editor at Industry Dive and the overseer of a bunch of dive titles on progress in those West Coast dock worker negotiations we mentioned today. Um, and that, of course, so many U.S. logistics disruptions over the past year or so. But for now, Brandon Freed, Kathy Roberson, thanks for joining me today on the Freight Buyers podcast. 
Well, it's always a pleasure to, to join you, Mike, and of course, Kathy. And thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate being on the podcast. And Brandon, thank you for the kind words. This podcast is proudly produced in partnership with DeMurco Express Group, a trusted provider of global shipping and contract logistics services in Asia, Europe, and North America. DeMurco's particular strength is in Asia, where it gives shippers the freight capacity and local market expertise to streamline freight movements to and from the region, particularly for Trans-Pacific lanes. With 130 forwarding and logistics locations across China, India, and Southeast Asia, DeMurco connects Asia with the world like no other global 3PL. You are listening to the Freight Buyers Club. Now, unless you've been whiling away your time in the middle of nowhere, or you haven't been uh, keeping up with your podcast listening, you'll know that there have been ongoing negotiations over a new labor contract covering the U.S. West Coast port and they've rather dragged on. Now, just some basics. The negotiations are between the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the ILWU. They represent nearly 14,000 port workers in California, Oregon, and Washington State. And the other party to these negotiations is the Pacific Maritime Association, which represents shipping lines terminal operators at 29 West Coast ports. The previous deal expired all the way back July the 1st, 2022. They started negotiating in around about May, but some of the local negotiations started before that, though basically a year ago. Over that period, since shippers have been taking big steps to avoid what they assumed would be productivity issues at West Coast ports, we've seen some acceleration in long-term trends in the U.S. economy and its freight and shipping structure a big shift in economic activity from the U.S. West Coast to the U.S. East Coast, where we've seen some cargo buildups last year particularly. Now, to discuss this and a few rather big stories that are breaking as we're online, I'm joined, I'm delighted to say, by Edwin Lopez from Industry Dive. Edwin manages a bunch of excellent U.S.-based publications, including Supply Chain Dive, Transport Dive, and Manufacturing Dive. Edwin, welcome to the Freight Buyers Club. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Edwin, uh, I've just given you the big wind into the dock workers that we're going to discuss. And we, we said we were going to discuss this from the off. But as I say, there's a bit of a deal that's happened. And I just want to go through that with you and get your take on it. This is very much in the freight buying space. And it's all Flexport, which people normally would classify as a digital or a tech forwarder. They've moved into last mile and e-commerce by acquiring the assets of a company that you know well, Shopify, they've, they've acquired the assets of Shopify Logistics. And under the terms of the agreement, Shopify will receive stock representing an approximately 13% equity interest in Flexport on top of its existing equity interest and Flexport valued in this deal at $8 billion. What's your first thoughts on this, Edwin, particularly from the Shopify side? Yeah, I mean, Mike, as you said, this broke this morning, maybe an hour, maybe two ago. So you're getting a, a gut reaction to the fastest takes. But overall, it's it's extremely interesting deal, right? Because you have two companies. You have Flexport, right? As you said, this digital freight forwarder that has been very well known, a darling in the media in a lot of spaces, that's going into something they haven't really done before which is delivery and logistics management more than forwarding. And then you have Shopify. And Shopify, you know, another kind of tech darling, right? A, a company that got really, really, really big started as 
helping small retailers get goods to consumers just through facilitating sales and websites and stuff. And then over the years, built a logistics empire, having really, really cool technology, you know, and deliver and other stuff that would actually get stuff to the door. But what's interesting about this is that Shopify is getting rid of that and they're getting rid of that to Flexport. So something about that is really fascinating because there is these two places where this logistics empire is going to this company that you wouldn't immediately assume would purchase these types of assets. So you're definitely wondering what is Flexport doing? What, are, what is their play? What is their move from here on? You know, what does their leadership have to do with all of this? And on the other hand, you're also wondering why did Shopify have to get rid of this? What was not going well, or maybe what opportunity did they see by getting rid of this altogether? And what does that say for other retailers like American Eagle that are trying to build their own logistics empires and help other retailers do the same and make money off of that? So it's all very interesting. I, I don't have a full answer right now. I just have a lot of questions, um, but it's going to be a very interesting thing to follow. Okay, I'm going to uh, stop you there, Edwin. I'd now like to bring in the uh, the brains and the leader behind the Flexport app on Shopify that was launched earlier this year. And the person who will also be leading Flexport's integration efforts with Shopify Logistics and Deliver. It's Flexport SVP of SMB Product and Tech. Parisa Sedzade, welcome to the Freight Buyers Club. Hi, thanks for having me. Parisa, I've just run through the basics of this deal with Edwin Lopez at Industry Dive. Now, I think from a freight buyer's perspective, if I'm a, a shipper, a small and medium-sized shipper, I'm trying to source in Asia, how does this deal help me get my product to the door to complete that last mile delivery to a customer in the US? Does this deal actually change things for me? Yeah, it's dramatic change. When you think about the challenges that a small merchant faces in supply chain today, they typically have low margins. They don't have logistics know-how. They don't have dedicated logistics resources. Typically, the CEO is the ops person who's also the salesperson. And so when they're dealing with supply chain challenges in ways that they want to optimize, there aren't very many logistics solutions out there for them. And so Flexport was originally started actually because of SMB challenges around global freight forwarding. And so our solutions prior to this acquisition were focused on the international movement of freight and really trying to democratize that. Now, with the acquisition of Shopify Logistics, which is inclusive of Deliver, we can extend those solutions from international freight going into domestic movement of freight through e-commerce fulfillment and ultimately last mile delivery to the customer door or retail store. And that end-to-end -end supply chain optimization helps us really minimize supply chain costs for SMBs who typically don't have those optimizations available to them. We also help maximize their in-stock rates, their reliability, and actual ability to get fast delivery promises for their customers, which improves conversion for them on their retail stores, and ultimately reduces waste from global supply chain, which helps with environmental impact for all of us. What sort of physical assets has this delivered to you that allows you to then handle this bigger and vaster array of parcels, everything from parcels to large freight? Obviously, you're a freight forwarder initially. You're entering an entirely new realm here. What have you got now that allows you to, to say that you can do this? Yeah, Flexport is generally asset light today. 
And Deliver and Shopify Logistics are also pretty asset light in the way that they developed e-commerce fulfillment and last mile delivery. With this acquisition, we'll acquire about 50 warehouses around the U.S. that they use to move inventory through today. So those will come. And we already have a network of carrier partners around the world that help us move international freight. And Deliver has a network of carrier partners that help them move domestic freight. So we're kind of marrying that partnership and that foundation of our partner network together. And is all this ready to go right now? Is that what we're saying? We are open for business. So Flexport today is open globally. Deliver operates in the U.S. and Canada today. And so that's where we'll start when it comes to the e-commerce fulfillment and last mile portions of the supply chain. However, our goal is to rapidly develop this uh, across the globe. So what's the strategy for last mile and outside of the U.S.? Can you tell me more on that? Are we going to see more uh, acquisitions or deals like this? I can't speculate on the future, but I can say that Deliver's got a pretty vast network for how they're serving um, components like Shop Promise and getting two to three day delivery promises across e-commerce marketplaces today. And our goal is to continue to extend that beyond the U.S. as quickly as possible. And Risa, obviously this is probably the biggest deal that your new CEO, Dave Clark, who's ex-Amazon, has done. It's It's a big shift in direction. You've you also held a number of senior positions at Amazon over over eleven years. You only joined Flexports at the end of last year, the final quarter. Yeah, is this the Amazonization of Flexport? Then are you not going to be a digital forwarder anymore? Are you going to be something else? I actually think that this is directly in line with the vision that Ryan had set when he first started the company. Yes, it started with freight forwarding, but the idea was really to democratize the movement of goods. And to do that, you have to own the last pieces of the supply chain puzzle and deliver in this acquisition of Shopify Logistics just moved us so much faster into that vision. But we were already marching down that path. So do you see the likes of UPS and Amazon and DHL and FedEx? Are they now your competitors with this move? We don't consider us as competitors. What we think of is that we could be great partners for all of these kinds of people. We love marrying people who move things with people who need things moved. And so when it comes to UPS and other types of carriers around the world, we want those partnerships. We need their help. In terms of Amazon and other people who offer solutions to sellers, we think Amazon's offerings are great. FBA, Prime Delivery Badging, those are all awesome customer offerings. And our goal is to invest in the end-to-end supply chain and, and hopefully one day partner with companies like Amazon and delivering more solutions to their sellers. So you're going to get along with everybody then? That's the goal. Teresa <laughs> Sadzade, thanks for joining me on the Freight Buyers Club today. Thanks so much. So Edwin, um, heard very briefly there from Parisa, do you think that there really is the desire out there, particularly these small and medium-sized shippers that this deal seems to be aimed at, at least from Flexport side, is there really that need for those companies? Is there enough of them out there that are importing or that haven't got that online presence and are really might benefit from this deal? I think so. Absolutely. I mean, if you're in the logistics space or if you've ever had to move a good or know someone that has to move a good, this is really complex stuff. And when you look at the profile of that small retailer, these are the people selling on Etsy. These are the people that are starting their business. These are the people that don't maybe have one or two people working with them, don't always have the payroll to have a logistics manager on staff. And to navigate the complexities of the world, the risks, right, that come with bringing stuff in internationally, but also nationally, right? To get stuff from your store or your house often 
all the way to the end consumer and be able to offer that service, that's tough. And so there's definitely a growing number of small and medium businesses. So we'll see what happens, but I'm very interested. Thanks for your early take on that story, Edwin. Uh, Let's go back to what we actually said we would talk about, which is ILWU PMA negotiations. This is the West Coast Dockers dispute that's been dragging on almost a year. And you've been covering it right through that period. Why, in your view, is this such an important topic for all things U.S. freight, for U.S. shippers, for U.S. retail? Yeah, it's simple, really, Mike. Ports are vital to the U.S. economy. That's something that every single person in the United States learned during the pandemic. If ports don't operate well, we run all sorts of risks. We run risks of shortages. We run risks of inflation. You name it. And in the United States, West Coasts are among the most important, if not the most important ports, right? About 30% of all goods imported to the United States or exported travel through either the Port of Los Angeles and Port of Long Beach. Those are both Los Angeles area ports. So if something goes wrong in that area, you could extrapolate that a, a significant part of our entire economy is at risk. And here's the thing, and and this is why people are watching these contract negotiations right now so closely. Things have gone wrong before, and they've gone wrong because of these negotiations. And that's very explicit, and it's clear to everybody. Let me give you a few examples, right? 20 years ago in 2002, there was a 10-day shutdown of the ports due to a contract dispute. I'm told, I wasn't covering back then, but I'm told it took three months for the ports to kind of get back to normal after just 10 days of disruption. Less than 10 years ago, in 2015, the White House had to get involved after months of slowdowns at the ports that started to hurt the economy. And that's why they kind of went in and said, all right, let's make sure that we get to the table and get a deal done. So looking at these two examples, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that's a recent memory. You can understand why shippers look at this now and say, well, what will happen this time? And how do I protect myself? I think, uh, yeah, I did cover some of those stories, but it goes back an awful lot longer than that. I did a a Lodestar podcast on this, actually, a deep dive, which I'll maybe add to the show notes, which details what a big factor this has been in US logistics, but particularly when that 2015 dispute, I mean, everybody who was around at that point and there was moving cargo, they knew what was potentially coming. And that's why we've seen this big shift. So if I might narrow it down slightly, you mentioned the port. There's all, we can also talk about real estate as well. Who's the big winners and losers in all this? Yeah, I think that's a very complicated answer, right? I, I think definitely the West Coast ports are nervous. They definitely feel like they're getting the short end of the stick. And they definitely feel like they're at risk and they might be losing volume and permanently, potentially, definitely temporarily to competitors, really, you know, other ports in the United States, other ports in Canada, and potentially even in Mexico. We recently did a story, right, where we looked into it. And the reason this is so complicated is because while you can hear that anecdotally, people are saying, hey, I'm going to not move stuff through the West Coast. I'm going to send my shipment to the East Coast instead. When you look at the data, you actually find a lot of other things are going on. The first thing I would say is, we had record volumes during the pandemic. And so you could say that, yeah, some cargo is moving, but most ports in the United States had a significantly larger amount of cargo that they had to handle during the pandemic. 
So everyone's winning is, is the first thing I would say, right? Demand will continue to go up over the years and ports are trying to prepare for that, whether that's the West Coast or the East Coast. The second thing, though, that was really interesting, and, and Descartes Systems did an analysis of this, which we reported out, which is that if you look at the cargo that was actually diverted, that should have gone to the West Coast, but didn't, at least in the last quarter, most of that actually went to the Gulf Coast ports. And if you look at the real estate data, and if you look at the, the general import data across all ports, not just the top nine, you're starting to find that there are a lot of small ports or smaller ports, I should say, like the Port Houston, like Port Mobile, like the ports in Tampa Bay in Florida, they're all getting a lot more volume than they used to. And definitely some of that has to do with these fear, because if you're going to divert cargo, you're not going to take it all the way to the East Coast all the time, because then you have to truck it cross country if you're trying to get to Arizona. It's a lot easier. It's a lot faster to send it to Houston and then truck that to Arizona, right? That's a lot more feasible in logistics. And so definitely the Gulf Coast ports are big winners. And the last thing I would add here is another really interesting dynamic is, and part of why it's so complicated is this is also related to what we saw in 2021, the congestion. And, and some of this congestion actually led people to divert cargo, not just from the West Coast ports, but people also kind of started to avoid the big ports in general. Port Houston saw a lot of congestion. New York and New Jersey saw a lot of congestion. Savannah saw a lot of congestion, right? And so you're starting to see these things where these smaller ports near those areas that are important started to get a lot of volume too. There's a small port north of Los Angeles, Port Huanemi. I, I did not say that right. But that port got a lot of volume, right? Port Freeport, just south of Houston, got a lot of volume as well. And so, yeah. Very interesting. Lots of winners, small ports, Gulf Coast ports, and some East Coast ports as well. Uh, one big through all of this. I mean, I've interviewed a few people about this, Edwin, and they've said that this is part of a longer term trend where economic activity has shifted away from that West Coast for various reasons. But I guess the big question is, does that cargo move back if there's a resolution? Now, there was reports about a breakthrough in negotiations. Now, the press releases I saw on that from the ILW didn't really say a hell of a lot. Do we know where we're up to on this? There's not a deal at the moment, that's for sure. What's outstanding? Do we know? Is it manning? Is it wages? Is it pensions? Is it automation? And do we have any sort of timeline on what happens next? Yeah, you said it yourself. Not too much publicly. The Pacific Maritime Association and the International Longshore and Warehouse Union, the two sides that are negotiating this contract, actually have agreed to not say anything to the media. And so everything that we're hearing and getting is through other means. But here is what we know so far. And as far as I understand, you know, these two sides actually went out of their way to give information before the negotiations started. So you can actually pull a lot from that. And what we know so, so far is there's a lot of issues on the table and we know some of them have agreements so far, but they're still working through several others. So here's what's on the table, wages, benefits, safety, training, right? Those are the classics that you can expect out of any working agreement. And then there's others which are less classic, but definitely have been on the table for the last 20 years, things like that focus a lot more on where ports are today and how did they prepare for the future? 
these are topics like automation and how that will affect U.S. terminals, their equipment, and more importantly, their jobs. That's on the table. How does that affect sustainability efforts, right? And, and how important is that to these negotiations? That's on the table. And so far, what we know is the two sides have put out a few press releases with updates on all of this. In July of 2022, last year, they said with certainty, one of these issues has been resolved, the maintenance of health benefits. Great. That's one of many, right? But one thing has 100% been resolved. And then just last month, on an early April morning, the Longshore Union said more deals had been reached on, and I quote, certain key issues. Now, haven't been able to confirm exactly all the list of the key issues there, but um, the Wall Street Journal did say that it had to do with automation, and, and I trust that reporting. I really do. I should add, too, that shortly after that press release, the Pacific Maritime Association sent their own press release saying, again, quoting, several key issues remain unresolved. So again, there's not exactly agreement on even how many things have been resolved, but we get a sense something's going on with automation, right? And either they reached the deal or it's part of the certain key issues and you don't know how big that result is and definitely benefits. But again, there's a lot of other things that we don't know if it's been resolved. We don't know if they'll give us 100% clarity. But you get the sense from kind of hearing how they communicate from the signals they've been sending that everyone's hopeful that things are progressing. And the question is now, well, how long? And the answer to that is, who knows? It could be any day now or it could be months. I was going to say watch this space, but I mean, you could be watching for quite some time if you think. You put it in terms of what's left on the table. This is a big table with a lot of things still left on it, right? There might be a bit of automation taken off. We think no one I know has, has actually nailed down exactly what has been resolved. What, what does seem to have happened is that these productivity slowdowns, there's very much local chapters of the IRWU, people not turning up for lunch times or being funny with breaks. That seems to have gone away. So productivity seems to have improved for now but if you're betting on where you're going to ship your cargo to that's probably not quite good enough if you're making plans and, and most people have already made plans for the rest of 2023 anyway we're right in the middle of the trans-pacific contracting season let's just uh, pivot slightly there edwin if we might because you did mention there when you were chatting away about mexico and that being somewhere that had had maybe benefited from this impasse on the west coast and We've raised that this topic a bit on, on this podcast previously. Geopolitics is also pushing people to find non-China alternatives, and Mexico is one of the winners in that particular game. And I want to bring in a, a particular railroad story. Now, this is the formation of CPKC, which is a railroad formed from the Canadian Pacific and Kansas City Southern Railroad. This was given regulatory approval in March. Uh, it's got a 20,000-mile network. What's interesting to me is this links the US, Canada, and Mexico. And I think this is a first, isn't it? Is this important in this general discussion about the efficiency of the US logistics network? Does this give people more options, possibly? Yeah, it, it's vitally important. I don't know if I would say it will have that much of an effect on the efficiency of the network. I, I think if you look at the long history of railroads, the people that are in the railroads, some of them might argue that consolidation doesn't always lead to more efficiency. 
nonetheless, I think the signal it sends is pretty strong. And and I want to be candid about this is that this started far before all of these long short talks, right? It's not directly related. It's not just about nearshoring or reshoring or China plus plus. What we're really seeing is greater integration between the United States, Canada, and Mexico that started with that renegotiation of NAFTA into the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. You're seeing, because of that, a lot of projections about increased demand. You're seeing a lot of collaboration between U.S. Commerce Department and Mexico's Commerce Department to try and bring more investment into Mexico, right? There's a clear position across the three countries, U.S., Mexico, and Canada, that when one country wins, all three countries wins versus a more competitive approach that might have been the case in previous decades. Or previous administrations, perhaps. Well, I don't know, but perhaps, right? I, I would say a lot of the growth in Mexico also came during the Trump years. And so it's not necessarily, you know, a zero-sum game in that all three countries really have been working after the deal got signed and, and all the bickering ended. And so what I would say here is CPKC, yes, it promises to be transformative, not just because of what they are doing, but because what it says about that confidence in this North American logistics network and the need for that to be integrated, what it says about the investment that will come as a result of having a clear rail corridor, not just from CPKC, but also on the other side, you've got CN tying up with Union Pacific and the company that runs Ferromex, Grupo Mexico. And so they're tying up together and having a similar quarter. So you're about to see a lot of the manufacturing infrastructure and logistics infrastructure that already exists in Mexico likely to get even more investment because now shippers know, hey, when I put a plant there, when I contract a supplier there, I know that there's a network ready for me to bring stuff into the United States and all the way up to Canada. And I don't have to work with three different carriers to make that happen. I can just call one. So yeah, promises to be very transformative. And I guess, you know, the people always say to me, cargo tends to find its way very much like water finds its way. If you've got a, an automated port without a union risk, cargo might find its way to that port a bit more often than it finds its way to somewhere where there's more risk. Would that be a fair way to put it? Yeah, I, I would say so. I'm not sure how much Mexico has benefited to be candid, right? From that, the reality is Mexico's seaports on the West are, are still fairly small. That said, there's tiny ports benefiting in the United States. I could see that happening. But definitely prior to all of this, prior to the pandemic even, you were actually seeing a lot of cargo move from the United States to Canada to places like Vancouver. And that was very much a through line of that, right? Which is to say, Canada just, that port works well. It works better, it works faster. Their railroads are well integrated. These are things that logistics managers do think about. How much risk, how efficient are these systems and how quickly and how safely can I make sure I get my cargo, not just today, but a year from now. Yeah, and I think uh, anyone who's been sad enough like me to um, follow things like terminal crane move productivity and things. The US tends not to feature very highly on many of those sorts of rankings. Anyway, let's, uh, let's look at another story if we could, Edwin, which I know you guys have been covering. Bed, Bath and Beyond has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection 
It's looking to close 475 of its remaining brick and mortar stores. This feels, as I think you guys have covered, it's a bit like the Toys R Us closure in 2017. What are you expecting to happen next? Toys R Us is a great example. One of the things that we've talked about as a team, right? I have a team of 12 people covering manufacturing, trucking, and supply chain. And, and one of the things that we talk about every once in a while is how integrated it all is, right? And for us, it really feels like that bath and beyond is a story about supply chains and how supply chains are embedded into every aspect of the company's operations and can affect every aspect of the company's operations. And so just to kind of go on this tangent real quick, you know, the bankruptcy was caused by what felt like a bank run on the company, right? Not exactly, but in short, Bed Bath & Beyond started to run out of cash and started to make questionable decisions like buying back stock so that when that happened, suppliers started getting nervous. And when suppliers get nervous, they can do things if they're important to the company, like tighten their payment terms to make sure they get their cash quickly after goods are delivered in the event that things go wrong. Well, as we all know, things did go wrong. Over the years, more and more people started asking for tighter terms and Bed Bath & Beyond had to pay for exorbitant rates during the pandemic to ship goods across the country and other fees to ship products to stores. All the while they were doing this, they had to keep their stores open and operating and have those fixed expenses going, right? And all of that contributed to the bankruptcy. All of this to say is from shipping to trucking to supplier payments, every aspect of the supply chain had a role in this. And so the what's next here, you know, it's pretty simple, right? When you do a bankruptcy, a company has a set timeline they have to follow that they agree with their lenders. In Bed Baths and Beyond case, they have to auction assets they're trying to sell. That auction is set for June 2nd. Sometime after that, maybe a month or two after that, they're going to have to complete their going out of business sales at stores, right? So go to Bed Bath and Beyond. If you're trying to buy something, they're going to have good sales. <laughs> and then around that same time, they have to file a plan, right? If they wanted to reorganize. But everything we've heard so far indicates that's not what they want. They want to liquidate. They, they want to go out of business, get out, sell everything and go. And so that Bath & Beyond will be no more likely. We'll see kind of as a month unfolds, something might change. Something could always change, but it really is an interesting story. It's really obviously related to this because it's about Bed Bath & Beyond, but as well as filing from bankruptcy, they've also filed a complaint against Orient Overseas Container Line and uh, OOCL Europe, one of the subsidiary sister companies with the Federal Maritime Commission, and they're claiming they were exploited by OCL to the tune of more than $25 million in excess costs above its contracts and around $6.4 million in detention and demorage fees. This isn't the only complaint against shipping lines that's with currently with the FMC. And we're going to be hearing from FMC Commissioner Carl Bensel on some of these issues in the next episode of this podcast. But what's your take on this claim by Bed Bath & Beyond? And are you expecting more people to make claims against carriers? Is this something that you're covering? Yeah, it's absolutely something we're interested in. We've been following this for quite a while, just that shipper-carrier relationship, right? And, and there can always be tensions in that inherently. But when it writes to a claim, that's something different. That's another level. To answer your question, yes, I think more claims are going to follow. And there's a few reasons for that. First, 
In the summer of last year, there was a new law in the United States that passed called the Ocean Shipping Reform Act of 2022. And that law really opened the door to more enforcement from the Federal Maritime Commission, the commission that oversees disputes like these. That can include processing and accepting more claims. It also includes more staff, right, to potentially investigate, uh, you know, and, and figure out how they, they structure that. On May 3rd, for example, the Federal Maritime Commission announced that it had already facilitated $1 million in refunded fees through a program that was instigated from this law. That program makes it easier for shippers to make claims and to address claims. So they're not all going to be millions of dollars in claims. Some of these are smaller claims, but even that is faster. It's more effective and they're already reaching milestones in how much is being adjudicated through that. Second reason here, there are already more cases like this on the docket. About a week prior to Bed Bath & Beyond making its case, another company, Samsung Electronics, served SM line with a claim asking for reparations over the tension and demerge charges that they incurred in 2021. A similarity here, these are about costs incurred in 2021 that now shippers are looking at and saying, this was insane. <laughs> there was a lot of this, you know, how do I get some of that money back, particularly right now where they're trying to save costs and make revenue wherever they can. And it's not just shippers either. Trucking companies have also made major claims against shipping lines on issues like this about fees and unjust practices and detention and demerge, with one recently winning a case against Half-Egg Lloyd worth over half a million dollars. So yes, I, I expect more claims will come. The question is, will they succeed? And if they succeed, will they prompt changes to how shipping lines operate, to the rules that they set, to the fees that they charge, to the guarantees that they make, or Will this just be the new normal where you live through an experience, right? You would do litigation and logistics litigation is just a field in and of itself because now there's mechanisms to adjudicate some of these disputes. Just to wrap this up slightly, Edwin, uh, a final thought from you. Well, this was true in Europe as well, but we'll look at the US. That's our focus here. The reason that we had all these detention demorage charges, the reason why there was cargo stranded and people end up paying all these different charges. And the we reason why we had OSRA and the FMC intervened was because of that crazy, crazy surge in cargo that we saw as a result of the pandemic and lockdowns. Now, most of those bottlenecks have now been removed. Attention and demorage charges have fallen away. There's not loads being in enforced at the moment. But let's say the economy recovers next year. Are there any lessons that have been learned from the pandemic and that surge, or, or is the US logistics system, is it in a slightly bit better place to cope with surges or is it going in that direction, do you think? That's a great question. Honestly, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. You know, on a personal note, when, when you're a journalist watching these things, you cover a story for so long and so deeply and in such detail, and then it disappears. And then people just stop talking about it. And you wonder what's going to happen. And so the optimistic part of me says yes. I want to say yes. We will be in a better position because I think we learned a lot from the pandemic, not just people in the business, but as a society. I think stakeholders in the supply chain saw how every bit of infrastructure that we rely on to move goods, whether that's ships, ports, warehouses, trucks, or even chassis, 
was fully occupied, fully utilized. And I know that seeing that many people who genuinely care about solving problems came up with really interesting solutions that I expect will continue to be tested even after the pandemic. I mean, FedEx Logistics started selling space on their empty containers because there was not enough space, you know, on the average shipping line. So they kind of started to do a little side hustle there. I saw companies like Lowe's and Big Lots starting to come up with new concepts for warehouses that allowed them to send goods to alternate locations and then at the warehouse start rerouting them rather than send all the goods where they belonged in the first place, right? They call these pop-up warehouses, or I think one of them even called it like congestion bypass service, right? Or a warehouse, right? And so all of these things are, are solutions that came up that I don't think companies will forget. If this happens again, we'll be faster to kind of come up. And you also saw a massive injection of capital, both on the private sector, from regulators and venture capital into some of these solutions that might help bring the next big thing. So somewhere in that, yes, I hope we're moving in the right direction. But the skeptic in me wonders if we're moving fast enough. Part of the reason that things got so bad so fast in the pandemic is that people had been talking about fixing the supply chain for a really, really, really long time. But it's really hard to get people on the same page about how, when, and where. I have a few examples, but I'll stop there. We'll, we'll see where this goes. I like your thesis that um, difficulty breeds innovation. And we did see a lot of that right through the pandemic. And I'm sure if we asked a few shippers, we say difficulties also bred a bit of profiteering. But I'll leave it there now. Edwin Lopez, thanks for joining me on the Freight Buyers Club today. Thanks for having me, Mike. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Freight Buyers Club, produced in partnership with the DeMurco Express Group. Please subscribe and follow on your platform of choice or sign up for delivery to your inbox at thefreightbuyersclub.com. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the fantastic editing of Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And finally, thank you all for listening. The next episode will be with you soon.